you have your Bible, uh, you can turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it'll also be in your bulletin and on the screen behind me uh, this morning. Uh, the Gospel of Luke's in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. As you're turning there, you probably saw the news this week. Uh, it made news, national news, the burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. One writer writes this, The spire tumbling down in a blaze, the flames shooting out behind the familiar facade of Notre Dame Dame Cathedral in the heart of Paris made our throats close up in anguish. That phrase stuck out to me, made our throats close up in anguish. That probably pales in comparison to the despair and the sorrow on that Good Friday when Jesus' body was taken down from the tree. The Son of God, His body was taken down from the tree dead and breathless. Those who had put their hope in Jesus, their hopes seemed to come crashing down in that moment. But little did they know that on that Friday, Sunday was coming. Because early that Easter Sunday morning, Mary and the other women went to the tomb to anoint Jesus. And little did they know that the king, the king that we talked about last week, who a week ago was riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Little did they know that the king, who was hanging from a tree on that good Friday, little did they know that that king's tomb would be empty. Happy Easter. The Lord is risen indeed. That in mind, let me read Luke chapter 24, 1 through 12, and then I'll read 36 through 49. This is God's word. Follow along with me. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Isn't that a great way to put it? In dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Down in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw the Spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet 
And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's Jesus basically saying all Scripture points to him. The Bible is about him at its center. Then he opened up their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise again from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you have clothed yourself with power from on high. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God to bless his word this morning and the preaching of it. Let's pray together. Father, and you have sent your spirit to us, and the Holy Spirit's job has always been to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and make him precious to people, to make him more real to our hearts. And so I pray that you would do just that this morning. Would you come and make Jesus beautiful to each and every person in this room? You know what we need. Uh, and so I pray that you would give us what we need, that you would search our hearts and apply your word in a way that I cannot do. Apply the word and the scriptures, Holy Spirit, in a way that only you can do. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Anybody know that line? It was Al Michaels from the 1980 Winter Olympics. The United States versus the Soviet Union. And the United States, the Americans were, to say they were an underdog uh, is an understatement. Uh, Because back then in the 1980s, the American team was made up of college athletes and The Soviet Union had professional players and they had won six gold medals and the Cold War friction was very high. Before the game even started, no one gave the Americans much of a chance against the Soviet superstars. But the Americans took the lead after the Soviets leading most of the game. They took the lead with about 10 minutes left and went up 4-3. to And the intensity was high. And uh, all they had to do, all the Americans had to do was hold on for 10 minutes and not let them score. And as the game starts winding down, the hometown crowd begins. And if you're familiar with the story, they start counting the clock down. And Al Michaels joins in with them in those final seconds, you know, five, four. And he, the few seconds left, he says, do you believe in miracles? Yes. And it seemed like a miracle, didn't it? It was definitely, you could say, an Olympic-sized moment. Well, the announcement at this early time, Sunday morning at this tomb by the angel, friends, is far better than Al Michaels' patriotic proclamation. Because in Luke chapter 24, this announcement, this announcement changed the world. 
See, the women went down to the tomb, sad and expecting to anoint a dead body because who beats death? And when they got to the tomb, they heard in the background, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Except it sounded like this. Look at verses 4 or 5 and 6. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you. You see, the Bible claims that the resurrection of Jesus is an historical fact. C.S. Lewis says this, If you take away the resurrection from Christianity, there is nothing specifically Christian left. If you take away the resurrection and Jesus did not come out of the grave, translation, you have no Christianity and nothing else matters, and this is a nice bedtime story, and you look nice this morning, but you got dressed up for nothing if Jesus did not come out of the grave. If Jesus did not come out of the grave, go home, eat your honey-baked ham, and have an Easter egg hunt for nothing else matters. You see, for the Christian, we talked about this last week, this is it. This is it. Christianity, uh, this is the foundation of Christianity. It's the pivotal point in all of history. It's why this very moment, millions of Christians are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus because it changes everything. Luke chapter 24, we're going to talk about, it's Easter. We're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to look at three things this morning from this passage. The reality of the resurrection the reason for the resurrection, and that second point, basically, so what? Why does the resurrection matter for you on a Tuesday afternoon? And then lastly, we'll look at the recipients of the resurrection. So the reality, the reason, and the recipients this morning. Let's look at number one, the reality of the resurrection. And so the Bible claims that this is historical fact, not not a spiritual reality, not a myth. Jesus' body literally came out of the grave. And he ascended into heaven. And if you're struggling with that this morning, I want to invite you to consider the evidence. And maybe you would even say you're a Christian and sometimes you struggle. Maybe you're uh, at a stoplight or at a stop sign or lying awake in the middle of the night and you think, "Is is this for real? Did this really happen? How can I know? We could talk for the rest of our time this morning about the evidence and the proof for the resurrection. We don't have time to do that. Let me mention two things. First, the resurrection, or anyone's resurrection for that matter, was surprising. It would have been as surprising to them 2,000 years ago as it would be for you today. And the reason why I say that is because we often think we're the really smart people in 2019, and we look back and look down upon... Those people uh, in Jesus' time, as uh, they were just, they were naive and they believed things like this. They had a worldview that accounted for people rising from the dead. No, they didn't. It was something uh, uh, that they were not expecting. How do you know? Well, look at the reaction, verses 36 and 37. Jesus appears to them. And notice they don't say, yes, Jesus, we knew you could do it. We were just waiting up here for you to finally get with the program and rise from the dead. Is that what they do? No. They're startled. They're afraid. Uh, They think they've seen a ghost. 
No one was expecting it. And Luke makes a point to let us know how much they were struggling to believe this. And that's why Jesus says, look at verse 39, touch me. Touch me. Touch my hands and my feet. Historian Tom Wright, he's done a lot of work on the resurrection, a lot of good work. And listen to what he says. He explains that there simply were no historical parallels in the ancient Near Eastern world to have your leader rise from the dead. To have a leader rise from the dead was completely and utterly novel for that time. And so how could you have had these people who were peasants, and the Bible says many of the disciples uneducated, how could they have made up something? It wasn't normal. How could they have made up something like the, re- the resurrection? It defies credibility to come up with an explanation for the pervasive, pervasiveness of Christianity without a literal bodily resurrection. If you come up with an explanation, you will find yourself struggling against the evidence, not with it. Bottom line is this. You cannot dismiss the resurrection and just simply say, oh, those folks back then, they believed that sort of thing. They didn't. Secondly, the body of Jesus really was gone. I mean, lots of people over the years have said, you know, the body of Jesus was stolen. Or maybe Mary went to the wrong tomb. Or or the disciples, they stole the body. I want you to consider this. How do you explain, if they stole the body, them dying for a lie? You know, most all the disciples were martyred. How do you explain that? How do you explain someone like Peter, who history says was crucified upside down, allowing that to be done to him if this was an all made up and and a complete lie? Or maybe you're thinking the Romans, they stole the body. Well, that doesn't make any sense either, does it? Because this is when Christianity took off in, in these coming years, and the Romans didn't like it. And so why would not the Romans come forth with the body in order to put an end to this Jesus movement that was going on? It could have been very easily squelched. We've got a body. They've been making all this up. This is a complete lie. It never happened. You know why it never happened? Because there was no body. Because this body of the Lord Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God the Father. Lots more we could say. Bottom line, Christianity is historical fact. It happened in real space and time. Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. It is reasonable. And there's evidence to show that it's reasonable. If you're skeptical this morning, maybe you're not struggling with whether or not it's fact. Maybe you say, okay, I'm good with that. Maybe your struggle is, so what? Why does it matter? Why is it so important to Christianity? Why is it the centerpiece? Maybe you're struggling with, what in the world does this have to do with my Tuesday morning? That leads to the second point, which is the reason for the resurrection. A few years ago, my mom had knee replacement surgery, and since then, it seems like I've talked to everybody that's had knee replacement or hip replacement surgery. Many of you in this congregation have had something like that, and if you talk to someone who has been through something like that, uh, they typically talk about how 
quickly the doctors get them back on their feet. I mean, it's within hours of this major surgery. They get you up and moving and walking. And most everyone that's gone through something like this, hours after the surgery, a few hours, when they come in to get you up, they're like, no, you're not going to get me up. <laughs> There's no way I can walk. I don't feel like I can walk. And you know what? The, the physical therapist or the nurse looks at you. If you've had this, they say, get up. Start walking. How can they say that? Well, because they know you have something inside you. They know that you have titanium metal inside you. And as bad as the pain might be, that that titanium metal is strong enough and powerful enough to hold your weight as you walk, no matter how great the pain might be. Let me ask you. Do you have something strong enough inside you, something strong enough and powerful enough to hold you? And I'm not talking about titanium metal. Do you have something strong enough not to hold your weight from a knee replacement, but to hold the weight of the brokenness and the sadness and the grief of this world? Do you? You see, in some way, shape, or form, all of us have experienced the pain and the sadness and the brokenness of the world. And if you haven't, you will. You will. It's been a tough year for many at our church. In the fall, we lost some people that we really loved. I've been in ministry 14 years, and to date, no question, the hardest three months of my ministry. Because it seemed like everywhere I turned, death. Many of you this morning have lost people you love. You've lost children. Your marriage is broken. You feel rejected. You have health problems. You've got the phone call that says you've got cancer. Maybe you're feeling the brokenness of your own sin this morning and the way it's affected other people. In those moments, what holds you? In those moments, how do you bear up under that weight? You see, oftentimes we look to technology and we look to food and drink and money and vacations and pleasure and comfort and relationships with people, and they hold us for only for a moment, don't they? They hold us for a moment, but they never give us the strength that we need in order to live life in a broken, fallen world. You see, what you believe about the future this morning impacts today. The resurrection and Easter gives you a real and living hope. The resurrection and Easter, why does it, how does it help you on your Tuesday morning? Because it gives you something strong enough and powerful enough to look whatever it is that you're facing right square in the eye and take another step forward. It gives you the strength to live in a broken and fallen world. How does it give you the strength? Two things, two sub-points. First of all, if you're united to Christ by faith, you will experience a bodily resurrection. If you are united to Christ by faith, you will experience a bodily resurrection. How do we know? Well, because look at verse 39 through 42. Jesus shows up. They're afraid. He's physically present. He says, touch me. Scholars over the years have said about the resurrection, oh, he spiritually rose from the dead, and he's, he's risen in your hearts. Not true. 
Jesus answers that objection. Look at verse 39. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, nor can a spirit eat. And then I love verse 42 and 43. He asks for a piece of fish, and he eats them in front of them. Again, one more way of him saying, this is for real. I am really present with you. Jesus' resurrection is his body's actually been transformed and renewed. And what that means is that if you're united to him, that one day your body will be resurrected. And your body will be renewed and transformed. Have we had lots of death this fall? Yes. But death does not have the last word. Let me say it another way. If you belong to Jesus, there will be a day when there will be no more nervous breakdowns. No more manic depression. No more dementia and frustration and breaks and aches and pains and your mind won't forget things. And there'll be a day when you won't need medication. And there'll be a day when no more will there be a time when an infant will only live for a few days. Praise be to God. Johnny Erickson Tata, founder of the International Disability Center, was 17 years old and she had an accident that left her paralyzed. She ended up becoming a Christian, and she was at a Christian conference. And at this conference, the speaker of the conference at the end says, I want everyone to get on their knees before God and pray. Well, there's a problem with that. Johnny couldn't get on her knees and pray because she was in a wheelchair. And she starts weeping because she realizes that she'll never be able to do that again. And then she says she remembered the resurrection and I thought about the party that gets going at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then she says this, the first thing that I'm going to do on my resurrected legs is drop on beautiful and glorified knees before Jesus and praise Him. And then I'm going to get up and start dancing. Do you have hope like that? Do you have something inside you that gives you that kind of hope this morning? That is resurrection hope. And if you believe in the resurrected Jesus, friends, this morning you've got something inside you that's stronger than titanium. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're united to him by faith, and if you are, then you have something strong and powerful that allows you to move forward with great hope in the sadness and the grief of the world in which we live. Secondly, though, the resurrection means, second sub-point, it means real forgiveness. Look at verse 46 and 47. That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed To all the nations, that's what we're doing here this morning. That's what we do every week. We proclaim the forgiveness of sins through Jesus to all the nations. But maybe, and Martin talked about this in his confession, and let's work that out even more. How does the resurrection connect to forgiveness of sins? Well, think about it in this way. Let's say, for example, you fall on hard times and you can't pay your electric bill. It goes by a couple of months eventually the power company turns your lights off. Someone at your workplace or at the church or 
school or whatever hears about what's going on and they go to the electric company and they pay the bill for you, how do you know that the bill's been paid? Not a trick question. You know how you know? Your lights come on. The penalty of our sin, Romans chapter 6 verse, uh, 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to earth to pay the debt that we owe God for our sin. And he lived the life that we couldn't live, and he dies the death that we deserved. But here's the question. How do we know that what happened on Good Friday really satisfies the debt that we owe? Or another way, how do we know that on the cross what Jesus did really satisfied the wrath of God? You know how you know? The lights came on. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ got up and he walked out of the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's way of stamping paid in full across all of human history so that no one could miss it. Some of you this morning have done things that you never thought you would do. Some of you carry around so much regret that it's visible. So much shame. And the lights are out in your life and you're trying your hardest to get those lights to come back on and they won't come back on. You've tried the route of being better, I'm going to do better, I'm going to read my Bible more, I'm going to get my act together and you're completely exhausted. Or you beat yourself up constantly. You're filled with such self-hatred that you never think God can love you again or anyone else can love you. And so you think, if I can just pay the debt myself, and if I can just hate myself enough, then I'll feel better. And God will maybe see that I'm really sorry, and he'll forgive me, and the other people around me will really believe that I'm trying, and they'll forgive me too. Friends, if you believe in Jesus by faith, are there consequences of sin? Yes. But if you believe in Jesus by faith, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that your debt has really been paid in full. Why? Because Jesus got up and he walked out of the grave. You got something that strong inside of you to hold you in the midst of your sin and failure and brokenness? Friends, that's stronger than titanium. You're united to Jesus by faith. That means you got that kind of power inside of you. And Jesus says, get up and walk. Last point. Who are the recipients of the resurrection? I'd never noticed this before. In connecting some dots here. Look at verse 10. Mary Magdalene and a woman named Joanna are mentioned as being first to the tomb. John chapter 20 says that Mary works it out a little more and says that Mary was the first to see and actually interact with the risen Jesus. But who are these women? And why is it significant that their names are mentioned? Why didn't Luke and the other writers just say, some women, but they named them. Why? Well, we don't know a lot about them, but in Luke chapter 8 verse 2, we learned that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. And Joanna, 
uh, was also healed of some sort of disease or infirmity. Do you know the only other person in the Bible that had multiple demons cast out of them in the Gospels? You know what their life was like? Mark chapter 5, a man who had multiple demons cast out of him. He was naked. He ran around screaming at the top of his lungs all the time. He would cut himself, and he lived in a graveyard. So we don't know for sure, but it's a safe guess that Mary's life maybe was something similar. And yet, and then she encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. And it changes her life. And so what's the point? Well, the point is that Mary's not a pillar in her community. Miller, uh, she's not the president of her company. She's not the first uh, of her class in school. And she's not well-connected at the country club. But she's an outcast in society, and I love this. Jesus heals her and makes her the first witness to the resurrection and the first one to deliver the news. What does that tell us about Jesus? What does that tell us about the salvation that Jesus brings through the resurrection? Well, it tells us that salvation that Jesus brings comes to people not on the basis of their morality or their pedigree or popularity or success, but it comes to them. The resurrected Jesus brings salvation by faith alone and by grace alone. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If you think about it, what I've just shared, it makes sense. It makes total sense now why Mary, you couldn't have pulled her away from Good Friday from the foot of the cross. While every, a lot of other people that were following Jesus were like, ah, whatever, and headed for the hills, you couldn't pull Mary away. It makes sense, doesn't it? And it makes sense why Mary was the first one running to the tomb and why John says that Mary was actually weeping at the tomb because Jesus was everything to her. She had nothing And Jesus changed her life. No wonder she loves him so much. And we see a principle there that we see all throughout Scripture, and it's this. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Let me say it another way. Your love for Jesus is directly proportional to how much you see your need of him. And I want you to think about the disciples and Mary. And and listen, don't focus here on the disciples. Disciples love Jesus. Okay, so hear that. Yes, they love Jesus. But I want you to think about the disciples' response. Jesus had been talking about his death for a few weeks. And when he would talk about his death, do you remember how the disciples responded? Oh, yeah, yeah, we hear you, Jesus, but we want the best seats. (laughs) Give us the best seats in the kingdom. Or, yes, we hear you, Jesus, uh, but who's the greatest? Me or this guy? Yeah, yes, Jesus, we hear you. We won't leave you. Remember, they're circled, and Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, and they all start going, it's not me. He might leave you, but I won't. What does that tell you? They thought they were pretty good. Mary knew who she was. Mary knew that she was nothing without Jesus, and she loved him and wanted to be near to him. And so you see what this means, don't you? If you're not passionate in your love for Jesus, then you don't think you need him. If you're not passionate 
in your love for Jesus, then you've missed something about who you are and who Jesus is. It means that you think you're pretty good and you need a little mercy. Jesus come for people who need lots of mercy. And so this morning, if you're at a place where you feel like you need lots of mercy and grace, you're in a great place because that's right where you need to be. Friends, Jesus is resurrection. It's for broken, flawed, weak, and sinful people because that's all there is. Despite what Luke Bryan says, most people aren't good, the Bible says. And Mary knew that. And my question is, do you know that? I had lunch with a guy this week. He and his wife are considering adoption. They've been through all the training and all the classes. And in one of the classes, they had an interview, a panel interview with different people. And one of the people that were there was a teenage girl who had been adopted. And here's what she said about adoption. Adoption's wonderful. This girl had been adopted out of the foster care system. She said adoption is wonderful. And the best thing about adoption and the reason why you should consider adoption is because with adoption, they don't send you back. You see, like that girl, Mary had been sent back her entire life. And she met someone in Jesus who for the first time healed her and didn't send her back. Some of you this morning, because of your failure and your brokenness, you think Jesus is going to send you back. If you believe in Jesus by faith, the resurrection is proved that Jesus will never send you back because you belong to him. And so wherever you are this morning and whatever it is that you've done, the resurrection is for you. The resurrected Jesus delights in showing mercy to real sinners like us. And so will you come to the risen Jesus this morning? That's an invitation. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us that you conquered death. The grave could not hold you. And I pray that you would fill us with hope because one day you will make all things new. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you this morning, I pray that you would make uh, Jesus clear to them and that you would give them faith. For those here that are sad and grieving because they miss someone they love, fill them with incredible hope. In Jesus' name, amen.